You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. I want to talk to you today about a potentially undiagnosed problem. So marriage will be the backdrop of our discussion. And the reason it's potentially undiagnosed is that our culture, by and large, lacks language to even discuss it effectively and meaningfully and profitably. This is a contentious and confused topic. And then, on top of all of that, each of us have our own histories and backgrounds and stories and experiences that we cannot help but lay on top of and filter, (laughs) use as a filter to hear anything that comes our way about this topic. So I told you last week, the title of the sermon is Passive Men and the Women Who Resent Them. I will say the title is more aggressive than the sermon, so don't panic. We do need to do a good bit of work. I want to try to make sure that I'm clear about what the Bible is saying and what it is not saying, and so we're going to have to hustle and look at a few different places to try to pull some bigger picture ideas across the pages of Scripture, and so uh, we'll need to buckle up and hustle. So Genesis chapter 1 is where we will begin. If you want to join me there, Genesis 1. This is verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. So God creates humanity in his own image. We're the apex of God's creating work. God sought to fill the world with beings who look and operate and act as he does, and he did so with us. But Genesis doesn't simply paint in broad strokes. It doesn't stop at mankind or more uh, generic humanity. And instead, it drives in on specifics. It says male and female. He created them. So who looks like God? He does and she does. Who is made in the image of God? She is and he is. So there's an equality of dignity found here with male and female. There's an equality of personhood. Neither is less than the other. Neither is more than the other. Couldn't possibly be the case because for that to be the case, we'd be saying certain parts of God are more or less important than others, which is nonsense. This should bring about a mutual respect Between the genders, men and women should recognize the unique aspects of the image of God in each other and be zealous to honor those. And then within that unquestionable equality of dignity and personhood, God makes distinguishing distinction between the two genders. He says male and female. And if you're familiar with the narrative leading to this point, you know that God's been making all kinds of distinction between creative things. So he divides light and dark, sky and sea, heavens and earth, land and water, night and day. And each part of creation is distinct, yet complements its counterpart. In the creation of human beings, God yet again distinguishes by creating male and female. They're equal in value as image bearers, yet different in form and function as male and female. And like the rest of creation, they are complementary counterparts. So don't don't miss this. Our distinctiveness as male and female actually lies at the heart of part of what it means to mirror the image of God in the world. 
both male and female, are good and necessary as part of being made in God's image, equality with distinction. So let me just challenge you quickly. Please don't lie about the Bible to try and accomplish a good goal. Here's what I mean by that. In the creation of mankind, God creates and then distinguishes by creating male and female. And you're being dishonest if you read Genesis chapter 1 and you see light and dark, sky and sea, heavens and earth, land and water, night and day, male and female, but then say there's really no difference in male and female. Those are irrelevant. We're, just, we're the same. That's foolishness. And I don't care how strong the cultural tides are to get you to believe it because a main theme of this passage is the distinguishing work of God. So if your goal is to eliminate the mistreatment of women, that's a good goal. That's the team that I'm on. God is the captain of that team. Eliminate mistreatment of women everywhere. But don't lie about the Bible in an effort to accomplish your good goal. In fact, the reason I want to eliminate the mistreatment of women is because of the Bible. God has made male and female in his image, and image bearers must not be mistreated, no matter their shape, size, race, or gender. So then Genesis chapter 2 zooms in on some of the more particular moments of creation. So skip forward with me to Genesis chapter 2. Pick it up in verse 15. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I'll make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So God puts Adam in the garden and gives him a calling. He says, work it, keep it. God makes him responsible for it. Then God gives him a specific command, don't eat from this tree. Then God gives him authority to name the animals. So he's got this calling. And then God creates Eve and basically says they're going to team up in the pursuit of this calling. That Hebrew word that gets translated as helper there is the word azer. It's a much more compelling word than the English word helper. We lose a little bit in translation. The picture that Azair paints is one of supporting strength, bringing strength that is lacking but necessary. God himself is called an Azair multiple times in the Bible. One example is uh, Psalm 33:20. It says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our Azair, our help and our shield. So scripture says they come together as husband and wife. They're naked and unashamed. Now watch, watch what happens with this dynamic as we flip forward to Genesis chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent, this is verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees, uh, fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now remember, God gave the command to not eat from the tree to only Adam. And notice, neither shall you touch it is an addition. God didn't actually say that part. They could have built a tree house on it. They just couldn't have touched it. They couldn't have eaten it. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, 
She took of its fruit and she ate. She's deceived by a line of thinking. She steps in, steps forward, and takes the fruit. The question is, where is the man? Is he off working? Is he off providing? Keep reading verse 6. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So all at once, everything that Adam was responsible for comes crashing down. Now notice the inversion. Adam was supposed to have dominion or leadership over the creatures, but here that gets inverted, and a creature now has dominion over Adam. He was supposed to have dominion over the garden, but now the fruit of the garden has dominion over him, and he was supposed to lead his wife forward into God's calling. Now she's leading him. Just think of all the ways that he could have engaged here. When the serpent is trying to confuse Eve by saying, did God really say, Adam could have stepped in and said, yes, he did. I'm the one he said it to. When the serpent says, you'll not surely die, he could have said, yes, we will, quite surely. That's exactly the words that God used. Move along, talking snake. He does none of these things, and instead, here's what happens. Get this visual. He steps back. He's silent when he should have spoken up. He's apathetic when he should have fought. He steps back when he should have stepped forward. He abdicates his responsibility. It didn't have to be complicated. He could have just stepped forward and said, ho, 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 I'm not totally clear on what's happening right now. It doesn't feel good. Let's just all take a step back and let's think for just a second here. He doesn't give his voice, he doesn't give his body, his strength, his energy, and instead he's calm, passive, reserved in the background. Eve, on the other hand, steps in, reaches out, takes control. Does that pattern sound at all familiar to you? Here's what I tell you. Many not all, but many of the men in my life group and in our church struggle with apathy. I would argue it's our most besetting sin struggle. Many, not all, but many of the women in my life group and in our church are overwhelmed. Generally speaking, men tend to struggle with passivity Women tend to struggle with control, manipulation, inserting themselves, and ending up overextended and overwhelmed. This pattern has become so prevalent, it's almost expected in families. Dad steps back, mom steps in. Dad is so uninvolved that he's there, but he's irrelevant. He's clueless. Mom keeps stepping in running everything, and in a way, he's glad to let it happen. If anyone's leading the family spiritually, it's mom. Wife is engaged with life group. Husband is there. I will assume the shocking amount of quiet means that you've picked up on this pattern but maybe feel like you're not allowed to acknowledge it or voice it. That might be a wrong assumption. I would argue that our culture just reinforces this, where it's expected that mom will lead the family and dad won't get in her way. He won't act like he could possibly have any input that's needed, much less be responsible for the family. He steps back, she steps forward. 
Keep reading in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now notice, who does God call out first? Adam. Why? Because he's the one who is responsible. That's a meaningful point because Satan reversed the order. But when God shows up, he goes straight to Adam. He reaffirms his created order by going to the counterpart to whom he gave responsibility. So what happens next? Adam blames Eve. Eve blames the serpent. Both of them, however, are going to experience some profound consequences from Adam's passivity and from Eve's over-insertion. Skip down to verse 14 and notice these curses or consequences. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is what's sometimes called the first gospel, or first mention of what God will do. One from the woman will crush you. It's going to require the gospel of Jesus to reverse the mess that was just created. All of the death, all of the war, all of the beatings, all of the abuse, all of it comes from this moment. And only the finished work of Jesus can begin to sort it out. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, rule there is not a benevolent word. God says to Eve, your problem was that you stepped out from authority, so authority is going to be a real issue in your life moving forward, that you will often want to be in control but not be able to. Sure enough, everywhere you go, childbirth is painful, and men mistreat and abuse women. Verse 17, And to Adam, God said, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So to Adam, God says, since your problem was passivity, I'm not going to let you survive unless you step forward and sweat. No more sitting back. If you want to eat, then there will be sweat dripping off of your brow. So as I was studying for this, I glanced at my ESV study Bible, and they have a little commentary thing over to the side. And I loved the way that they talked about what we just read. I just want to read you an excerpt. This is just the ESV study Bible. It says, These words from the Lord indicate that there will be an ongoing struggle between the woman and the man for leadership in the marriage relationship. The leadership role of the husband and the complementary relationship between the husband and wife that were ordained by God before the fall have now been deeply damaged and distorted by sin. Eve will have the sinful desire to oppose Adam and assert leadership over him, reversing God's plan for Adam's leadership in marriage. But Adam will abandon his God-given pre-fall role of leading, guarding, and caring for his wife, 
replacing this with his own sinful, distorted desire to rule over Eve. Thus, one of the most tragic results of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God is an ongoing, damaging conflict between husband and wife in marriage, driven by the sinful behavior of both in rebellion against their God-given roles and responsibilities in marriage. So the reality is, some of the tension and frustration in our marriages today goes all the way back to the beginning of time. But in the fullness of time, Jesus came to redeem those under the curse of sin and the curses that it brought. Jesus means to bring us back to the original dream and design for marriage. So in the New Testament, we have commands for Christian marriages that hearken all the way back to the design of male and female in marriage, showing off the image of God in complementary ways. But if you don't understand this pattern and this problem, then some of what the New Testament says about marriage is going to sound confusing, if not offensive, to you. So that's set up for Ephesians chapter 5. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 5 now. Pick it up in verse 22. We're all going to be okay, I promise. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now for us, this is the part of the passage that sticks out like a sore thumb. Now for the original audience, where men had far more power than women, this would have actually been normative. No one would have thought twice about what I just read. And instead, it's the next part that would have stuck out. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So in a culture where men had most of the power, this was the confrontational part. And I didn't realize how much my culture had affected me until years ago, Courtney and I took a trip to India. We were visiting um, with the safe home that our church had helped start years ago, and we were meeting some of the kids who had been brought out. It was a, a safe home for those who were caught up in sex trafficking. And so we were meeting some of these kids. And part of what we did on the trip was go to an English-speaking Indian church. We visited, and that Sunday, they happened to be teaching this passage. And the pastor was reading it. And he read the part about wives. And he literally, he says, he says also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And I'm sort of waiting on the room to feel like what our room feels like right now. And he goes, everyone already knows this. We all agree with this. We all see the beauty and need for this. Let's read the next part to husbands. And I was like, we all what? <laughs> and he reads the next parts to husbands. And he ends with husbands, when you love your wife, you love your own self. Treat her like you would your own body. And then he pauses. And he collects himself. He takes a deep breath like he's summoning some courage, and he looks out, and he says, men, 
it is sinful for you to hit your wife. And you could have heard a pin drop in the room. And Courtney and I are sitting there going, why are we acting like this is some profound statement? Of, co- of course. I don't. <laughs> I think you've got the emphasis on the wrong syllable. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, after the service, we were talking to the, um, to, the, to the couple that had taken us who were the house parents of the safe home. And as soon as they walked up, they said, I am so proud of him for taking a stand like that. And I said, what? And they said, there are people who will leave our church because he just said that. There are many in this culture who believe it is actually okay situationally for a husband to hit his wife. We'll ha- he will get a lot of heat and we will have people who will leave our church because he just took a stand the way that he did. And I realized in that moment how much my culture really does shape what I think is right and what I think is wrong with God's word. And that I need to be really careful to make sure I humble myself, especially to the parts that strike me as wrong, because maybe my culture has influenced me more than I realize it has. Here's another one in scripture. It's from Colossians 3.18. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So do you see what he's doing? He's reversing the curse. That's what's happening here. He's saying, wives, submit to your husbands, follow his leadership. Husbands, love your wives as yourself. Do not be harsh with them. Honor your wife. Treat her as you treat your own body. Sacrifice for her as Christ sacrificed himself for the church. All right. Uh, because these concepts have so much potential for confusion, I do want to simplify it as much as I can and give you a little bit of a breakdown. I hope that this will be helpful. It's uh, one of the more helpful ways that I've seen it broken down. I put it in a chart for you. So let me show you what the callings are and the potential errors, okay? So first, for husbands, the calling is loving, humble responsibility. It means husbands, It is ultimately on you to make sure your wife, marriage, and family are healthy. It means it's on you to make sure that's getting done. It means you steer decisions towards what's best for your family, not just for yourself. It means you lead with your words and your example. It doesn't mean you do everything or decide everything. It means you're responsible for what does get done and what does get decided. And the wife in this is called to a joyful intelligent submission. And you'll notice very quickly, if the husband's doing his part, then that concept gets a whole lot easier. But she is not to leave her brain or voice at the altar. She's to bring all of her wisdom and gifts and strengths to the marriage. And the wife is called to follow her husband's leadership joyfully as they together try to lead the family to honor God. Now to the potential errors. First, for the husband, There's an error of dominance, which is to be a tyrant, to be domineering, lording his position of authority over his wife, taking advantage of it, sinfully even maybe enjoying the power trip. So the tyrant runs amok like a sad king who finally has a small kingdom to reign over. He wants everyone to serve him. He might even ensure that's the only choice they have. Now, the passive error, on the other hand, is to become a coward, to be silent when you should speak, 
to know things that need to change in your marriage or your family, but you don't want to rock the boat, so you just keep it to yourself and you turn to your hobbies. So being a coward is all about abdicating your responsibility to lead and protect. And like Adam, when the enemy comes, you're either too preoccupied or foolish to see it. Okay, culturally speaking, which one would you say our society is more worried about, the tyrant or the coward? I would say we're more worried about the tyrant. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're very concerned about the tyrant. I think it is the backdrop when people talk derogatively about the patriarchy. We even have a, a term that we've come up with to try to categorize that error, toxic masculinity. And it's absolutely a problem. It's absolutely a problem. Tyrant men have done all sorts of damage. Their trails of destruction are usually very visible because when a man takes his energy to uses his energy to take instead of give, to harm instead of bless, it causes a tremendous amount of damage that usually lasts through generations. Here's what's interesting, though. We don't seem to have the same terms or the same amount of fear for the opposite error in men. At least to my knowledge, there's no slogans to warn of the dangers of men, husbands, and fathers who are just there. And I think this is probably because the damage that cowards cause is usually way less visible. The damage cowards bring is like that of Adam who steps back from his wife who's in danger because that was easier and who when confronted says it was her fault. And that discrepancy is interesting to me because if I had to guess, about one in 10 of us would say that our fathers were more of a tyrant around one in 10. He was overly aggressive to the point of controlling, maybe even abusive. And then there are some of us who would say our dads, generally speaking, got it right. More or less, they, they got it right. And then all the rest of us would say that our dads were more so passive. He was there, but he was irrelevant. And he may have worked hard to pay the bills, but he didn't really have vulnerable conversations with you. He was at the dinner table, but he didn't lead you into what it meant to be an adult. Mom read in the family kept everything going. If something was going to change, it was because mom brought it up, not dad. And because mom saw the change through, not dad. And if the family did something spiritual or discipleship oriented, it was because mom drove it, not dad. It was mom who decided when and if you would go to church services. And generally speaking, dad just tried to keep mom happy and do whatever she wanted. And the damage that comes from this might be less overt than the tyrant, but many of the wounds and deficits we discussed, we discussed earlier in the series actually came from passive, cowardly fathers. All right, to the errors of wives. On the right side, we have usurper. I know this is not a great, I, I couldn't think of a better word. I know the kids aren't using the word usurper in the streets these days. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't find a better word. And so if you'll just extend me some grace here. A usurper is a person who takes a position of power illegally or by force. All right, so usurpers are the wives who are more than glad for their husband to take a back seat, who in all honesty would challenge his every move until he did anyway. A usurper is resistant to her husband, hostile towards the very idea of his competency and leadership. Usually, even if a usurper enjoys or prefers this role deep down, there's often a simmering resentment towards the weak man that she's married to. On the other hand, the other error, passive women become doormats. 
day after day, month after month, year after year in their marriage. It's, yes, dear, whatever you say, dear. She doesn't contribute at all to the decision-making process. She has no real preferences or desires or voice. She's a doormat. Okay, again, of these two, which one would you say our culture is more concerned with women becoming? Doormat, absolutely, the doormat. This is where almost all of our fear and warnings are. And in large part, it's because of sinful treatment of women in the past. But there's very little fear or caution on the other side of the spectrum. So all this, all this begs the question, which are you currently operating in? The biblical design or one of the errors? And the chart is just an attempt to paint a picture. So think about it like this. If a tyrant is married to a usurper, there's conflict all the time. It never stops. When a tyrant is married to a doormat, there's all kinds of mistreatment and abuse, and it's dehumanizing for both of them. If a coward is married to a doormat, they never actually engage meaningfully out of fear of rocking the boat. So the result is two strangers who live together. And when a coward is married to a usurper, usually there's a simmering resentment in both until someone snaps Someone has an affair. She finally drives him down into the small man she's trained him to be, and then she moves on to another challenge. And again, in every culture, there's parts of the Bible that sound wildly wrong. I'm very well, well aware of the water that I'm swimming in right now. And I think there's a few reasons why this sounds a little bit off-putting potentially, including the abuse of these passages like this to excuse or even to condone sinful mistreatment of women. That's deplorable, and God will judge it. But in reaction, there are some who would say that Paul and others are simply wrong. They're wrong for saying this. There are others who would say it doesn't mean really anything. And then generally speaking, a whole lot of people who just ignore it altogether. And I would suggest to you that all those ideas are bad ideas that do not lead to good fruit. So my question again is, what if much of our resistance to this idea is actually culturally conditioned? And a result of the fact that we largely react to bad examples. So what if we're a culture that has so publicized correctly the sins of tyrant men that many of us as men are running as far and as fast as as we can from being a tyrant, and potentially some of us ran past the biblical ideal into becoming passive cowards? And what if women have been shown examples of doormats in history and in their own lives, and they vowed to never let themselves be treated that way correctly? But in so doing, we run right past the idea of a joyful, intelligent submission in marriage and into the role of usurper. And for folks who aren't married, Ephesians 5 is about husbands and wives. It's not about men and women. But the tendencies are potentially still there for self-inspection. Men, are you passive? Married or not? Are you a tyrant? Married or not? Women, are you a doormat? Do you hesitate to express your thoughts and insights for fear of rocking the boat or out of insecurity? Or are you more tempted to overly insert yourself? So in a a room like this, in a crowd of the size, I'm sure that there are at least a few tyrant men and at least a few doormat women, or at least those of us who might trend in that direction in our weaknesses. So I hope that just by hearing some of this and seeing some of this, you've got some applications that come to mind for those of you for whom that fits. Um, I'd encourage you to talk to a life group leader, even grab a pastor to talk more about your application. But to end, I want to address 
coward husbands and usurper wives. Or going back to the sermon title, to passive men and the women who resent them. The biblical admonition that I would make to cowardly husbands and usurper wives comes from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33. It says, however, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. All right. Gentlemen who are married or may one day be married, and you're in danger of being on the passive side, let me just say a couple things. And the first is, uh, we live in a culture where immaturity and adolescence get perpetuated. I've heard it called Peter Pan syndrome. Where we don't want to grow up. We don't want to take responsibility for ourselves. We don't want to learn how to cultivate relationships with others. And instead, we have men who shirk responsibilities, who blame others for their immaturity, and are oftentimes more adept at cultivating hobbies and games than their own actual lives. So there may not be anything inherently wrong with many of the things you spend your time doing, but if you're more adept at your hobbies than you are at engaging your wife or reading your Bible or connecting with your kids or making sure that things that need to change in your family actually get changed, that needs to begin to shift today because it's a passive way to live. It gives you no purpose. It dishonors your high calling in God, and it probably makes your wife resent you. You need to learn how to speak directly. This is what I think. This is what I feel. I disagree, and here's why. This is how I think we should handle this situation. What do you think? We have to risk putting ourselves out there, feeling exposed and feeling vulnerable. We need to become aware of the pull on our souls to sit back and see if someone else will take care of things so that we don't have to. Your life should not be a drain on others. Instead, others should drain from your strength and your ability to handle responsibility. You're to become a source of strength and energy and protection and purpose and direction. I heard a pastor named Robert Lewis talking about some of this, and he said, quote, the boy in you must die. And as soon as he said that, I knew exactly what he meant. Gentlemen, we also live in a culture where the message at times is that there's something wrong with men simply because we are men. That men are dangerous and a problem and that we ruin everything. So I want you to hear that you are needed. We need you. We need you to engage. We need you to have that necessary but tough conversation and to bring it up. We need you to engage the problematic neighbor who needs to get talked to. Don't make your wife have to do that. We need you to initiate spiritual conversations to be more forward with your relationship with God. We need dads to engage their kids' hearts. You're needed. And listen, half, half of us in the room have wives who are more gifted leaders than we are. That's fine. That's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about responsibility. So if she's a better leader than you, then I would suggest a lot of collaboration. In fact, most often in my house, the way that it goes is, hey, Courtney, what do you think about this? And she says something very smart, and I say, yeah, that's what I think now too. <laughs> that's fine. So let me just give you an idea of how you could start. Very simply, ask yourself, what's an area of my marriage, my family, or my life that I would like to grow or be healthier? And one day this week, 
tell your wife you'd like to pray about that thing together. If she's on board with it, put down your phone, grab her hand, and pray about it with her. Then thank her for praying with you. Perhaps discuss it. That's the start. That's it. Simple as that. You see a problem. You take responsibility instead of waiting to see what's going to happen. You initiate bringing needed change. That's the key. If something's wrong, you don't sit back and wait on someone to fix it. You step in. Step forward. Take responsibility. All right. To wives who might tend more towards the usurper side of the chart. I want to share something with you. You might have heard it. I would say it's almost impossible to believe as a woman how true it is, though. Your husband almost certainly would rather feel respected than loved. Now, he wants both. I'm not trying to paint a false dichotomy, so don't pick a fight with me. But out of all the nice things you could possibly say to your husband, things like, I love you, things like, I enjoy spending time with you, or, hey, I saw how you handled this, and I thought you handled that awesome, and I am really proud of you. He picks that last one. Most of the gentlemen have eyes who have squinted right now. I can't see your smiles, but I know that you're smiling because the very thought of your wife saying something so profoundly meaningful to you sounds delightful. I saw one study that said 74% of men would rather feel lonely and unloved than feel inadequate and disrespected. That's how deep your husband's need for respect is. It's why Ephesians 5 says, men love your wives, wives respect your husbands. That's the ending command of all this. So I think respect is actually what submission looks like in day-to-day life. Now, our culture says that love should be unconditional, but respect must be earned. That's not what Scripture says. Respect is a command. Your husband needs to have your respect. If you want him to feel loved by you, then show him that you respect him. Because if a man feels disrespected, he is going to feel unloved. And if... You refuse to respect your man. You need to know the Bible actually sides with him. God himself has sympathy for the husband whose wife refuses to respect him. Let me give you a few examples. Proverbs 21, 19. Better to live in a desert than with a quarrelsome and ill-tempered wife. Ill-tempered means always bothered by something. Nothing you do is ever good enough. You cannot please her. Proverbs 21, 9. Better to live on the corner of the roof than share a house with a quarrelsome wife. Quarrelsome means contentious, always picking fights, always wanting to argue, always making things into a big deal, nagging. Proverbs 27, 15. A quarrelsome wife is like a constant dripping on a rainy day. So one of our deepest fears as men is to be found inadequate. That is a haunting thought. And for the man with a nagging, usurping wife, that is what he is always feeling. Because we operate around respect. A wife who is nagging, correcting, controlling, is emasculating. It's castration by critique. And it's hard to watch 
when a wife belittles her husband, when she emasculates him in front of others or in front of their kids, when she resists any attempt to help or lead, God pities the husband whose wife does not respect him because that man cannot win. He can't be a man and fulfill his role without his wife being angry or contentious. So he can back down and lose. Or he can fight back and lose. And the way that most men respond to that dynamic is they either rage out in anger or they shut down. And most often, that man will just stop trying. He shuts down. Oftentimes, he doesn't even know why he's shutting down. We can't articulate it. We're just angry and frustrated and feel like we can't win. And these husbands stop trying to set the tone. They stop with anything energetic towards the family or toward their marriage, and they put all their energy towards work, where at least they can feel some validation, where they can set goals and accomplish them. They get positive feedback or anything else where they can feel validated, a hobby or video games will do. Relationship, uh, respect is like relationship fuel for a man. When a, when a man's wife respects him, he feels like a man because she knows him best. And often, not always, but often, he'll actually respond by living up to her respect and her belief in him. So you wives have magical powers in that way. You can say things that make your man's shoulders sink down and down and down. You're terrible at this. You always get this wrong. You never get this right. Should I call the plumber now, or do you want to try to fix it first, and then I'll call the plumber afterwards? You just shrink him down. But you can also speak to him in a way that makes his shoulders raise. Did you know that? You can say, hey, I... I've noticed this, and I know the man I married, and the man that I married is thoughtful and considerate, so I just wanted to bring this to your attention in case you hadn't thought about it. And his shoulders go up, and he's already doing whatever the thing was before you even finished your sentence. So let me tell one of the more meaningful stories that I've ever heard around this subject, because I think it paints a good picture. It's from uh, an African-American pastor named E.V. Hill, he was preaching at his wife's funeral, and it was recorded, and he told a story as a part of the eulogy. He said that early in their marriage, he had lost his job, and he had been out looking for work one day, and he came home to a candlelight dinner with his wife sitting there at the table, and he says they ate and sat and talked and had a great meal, and afterwards, he went to the bathroom, and he flipped on the light switch, but the lights didn't come on. So he went into another room and flipped on the light switch in there. And once again, the lights didn't come on. And he stuck his head out of the room and he said, did they turn off our power? And she said, yeah, we didn't have money to pay the bill. But I didn't want to make a big deal out of it because I knew you would take care of it. And God's going to get us through it. And you're out working so hard to find work to support our family. I did not want it to be the first thing that you thought about or had to deal with when you came home. So I thought we'd just start with a candlelit dinner. Speaking at her funeral, years later, he tells this story with tears streaming down his face. He says, in that moment, she could have ruined me. If I walk in that door, newly married, out of work, can't find work right now. 
And the first thing my wife says is, what kind of a man can't keep the lights on for his family? He said, I would have been crushed. He said, she never did that. And instead, she always made me feel like a man. Those were the words that he used. That is what respect looks like. And as we talk about all of this, are there particulars and specifics about your marriage that I am not addressing? Yes, there are. Yes, there are. Is there more nuance needed for how you'll need to apply this? Absolutely. Are there specific things about your marriage that need to be accounted for and dealt with that are going to change some of the ways that you think about addressing it? Absolutely. Of course there are. I'm just trying to give you the patterns and let you see what you notice, and then you can take it from there. So husbands, let's step up, step forward into the humble, sacrificial leadership roles we were designed for. Our wives, our families, our world even needs it. And wives, extend respect to your husband and just see if something deep in your soul begins to change from feeling like resentment to feeling like something a little bit warmer. Let me pray. God, we want to ask that you would send your spirit now to help us know how to apply this, how to think about this, how to process this. I know that each of us are filtering all these words through our own histories and our own experiences, and so would you help us to see clearly? God, would you help us to see at least a little bit past the cultural conditioning that's happened to us here, that we could see the beauty of your design? God, there there are so many different particulars and exceptions and nuances with all of this in our particular specific marriages. And so would you help us just filter all of that? And would you help us to walk in the beauty of what you called us to? We ask it for your glory and our good. Amen. All right, just a few announcements for us before... We are done for the day. I wanted to remind you about the Midtown class. It's coming up February the 14th. That is a great next step for those of you who are interested in finding out more about our church. And it is our process for membership. And so more information can be found on our website if you want to go there. But that class, again, starts February the 14th. And then last thing is that Ash Wednesday is quickly approaching. It's February 17th. And we will have two Ash Wednesday services, one at 6.30 a.m., and then another at 5 p.m. for whichever one suits your calendar best. These will be outside, and we will host those in our parking lot. And so February 17th at 6.30 a.m. or 5 p.m. for Ash Wednesday. Looking forward to seeing you there. Have a great day.